chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. That's where we're going to be at today. The title is Jesus is Our King. And so kind of to start out, I want to talk, I want to talk about fear for just a moment. Because fear is a pretty powerful and effective tool of Satan. Fear is all around us. Politics can cause fear. Finances can cause fear. Peer pressure is based upon fear. Um, We can parent out of fear. We often don't share the gospel because we can be fearful. Health can cause us to be fearful. Some Christians will abandon the faith because of fear. Fear of persecution, fear of death, fear of social pressures. So I kind of just want to ask you in the beginning, as we start digging in this morning, what do you fear? And I know some of you, something, something comes to your mind very, very quickly, and for some of you, you're going, I don't, I don't fear anything. Which is a lie, it just means that, and I fall into that where I, I sometimes don't think about the things that I fear. But what causes you to be anxious? What prevents you from being more bold with sharing the gospel, with living out your faith? I just just want you to think about that today. We're going to be in Revelation 1 this morning, and we're going to look at an incredible truth that will massively impact the way we live our lives every single day. And, And the truth is, Jesus is king. Now, some of you are going, yeah, I know that. How does that massively impact my life every single day? And there's a difference between knowing something and knowing it in the way that you embrace it, that you love it, and that you believe in it with all of your heart and soul and body and mind. And so today, we're going to be looking... Jesus is king in a vision that we're given in Revelation 1 that's meant to just put us in awe. And my hope is that you and I would better see this truth today. It would love the truth that our king, Jesus, is on his throne. Because as I've looked at this message and as I've wrestled with the truth of this message, I'm convicted in ways that I know I don't act in obedience with this Every day. And so my prayer is going, walking through this, is I I want to know this truth more. I want the truth that Jesus is on the throne, ruling all things, and everything comes through his throne. And there is no chaos, no matter what it appears to look like from the human perspective. He is in control. I want to know that more. And see that and believe that. And so that's my, my prayer today, is as we walk into this text, that God would work this truth into our hearts and lives. So here's, here's the main point. It's on your outline. It says, the matchless splendor of our King Jesus strengthens the church to joyfully persevere in the faith. So when we look at Jesus as King, it's meant to impact us. It's meant to have an effect on us. It's meant to move us, to strengthen us, to grow us in our faith. So we're going to go ahead and turn to Revelation 1. I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to read verses 9 through 20. Now, some of you have asked me, are we doing a whole series in Revelation? No, 
This is our last one in Revelation, and then we're going to, for the next two weeks, we'll be in two other passages, and then I believe starting in October, we will be in the book of Malachi, so uh, I encourage you to begin reading Malachi. But we stand now, because this is God's word, inspired by him, comes with his full authority, Isn't, it is inerrant, and is given to us for the purpose of building us up. So as we read this, we know the Spirit is working in it right now. To build us up in our faith. So verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw it, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that will take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Let me pray. Father, Father, you have given your church, you have given us this vision that we would know who you are, that we would see the rule of your son, that we would know what it means for him to rule and for him to reign, that we would understand what it means to be a citizen in his kingdom living on earth right now. You have given us this text so that we would run with endurance. And so, Lord, I pray that we would know this text I pray that your spirit will ingrain this text into every fiber and every atom of our bodies and our souls, that we will be unwavering in our faith. God, help us to love this vision. In your name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. Uh, So you have a pretty full outline. Uh, So we're going to see, we're going to make it all the way through, one way or another. Uh, the first part, we're going to get through pretty quick. We can spend a whole sermon on this first part, but we're, we're setting the stage. As we look at three truths about the, stir, about the church, we're going to set the stage so that we understand the vision. So we're going to hit that fairly quickly, and then we'll spend more time in the preceding sections. So we'll just start three truths that we learn about the church. These all come from verse 9. Number one, Christians are in the tribulation. 
John says he is our brother and partner in the tribulation. Tribulation means affliction. It means trial. It means suffering. The New Testament teaches that from the ascension of Jesus to his return, there will be tribulation. This means that for the Christian, we can expect suffering and trials here on earth. The first readers of this letter, they faced persecution. They knew people who had died for their faith. So when they're reading this, they're going, yep, that makes sense. Those in India, those in Korea, those in China, they're reading this, they're going, yep, we see that every single day. This is what John 15 says. Jesus says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours. Acts 14, this is at the end of the first missionary journey. Paul's coming back around, encouraging the churches that have been planted. And notice the last half of it. He says, and saying that through <clears throat> many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's truth number one. <clears throat> Life is full of trials, pain, and suffering here on earth. Truth number two, Christians are in the kingdom. The present reality of every single Christian is that you are a citizen of God's kingdom right now, today. The Bible says that we are aliens and strangers on earth. We are ambassadors for Christ, which means the church represents the rule and the presence of God on earth today. So when the world looks at the church they're looking at a people who have a different citizenship, a heavenly citizenship. And it's because we have this heavenly citizenship, a foreign citizenship to this world, that we can know that there will be persecution, that we can know there will be tribulation here on this earth. So then the question arises, what does it mean to be a citizen in God's kingdom right now living in the tribulation here on earth. Which John also answers that because he says, I'm a brother and a partner with you in the tribulation, in the kingdom, and the patient endurance. The way he characterizes the Christian life and the point of revelation and a large point of Hebrews when we went through that last year is that as Christians, we are called to, to endure, to run, to persevere in the faith. One thing we said throughout the book of Hebrews is that salvation is not just about starting the race, it's the entire race. You have been saved to be conformed to the image of the glory of Christ that you would be glorified with him and live with him for all of eternity. It's all part of salvation. We see this also all throughout the New Testament. Matthew 24, 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 2 Timothy 2, 12. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. Hebrews 3, 14. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So if we just put all this together, we kind of summarize it. A Christian 
is a citizen in God's kingdom who lives on earth and patiently endures the tribulation. That's the Christian life. In fact, the apostle John is living out this very reality as he writes the book of Revelation. Look at what it says. He's been exiled on the island of Patmos. Well, why? Why has he been exiled? What did he do? Well, verse 9, verse nine just, there's a lot of information in verse 9. Verse 9 says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So why is he in exile? For being a Christian, for being a citizen of God's kingdom, for loving Jesus, for living under the rule of King Jesus. The world has hated him, persecuted him, and sent him to be on exile on an island. He's living out the message of this text. And so he's now encouraging the rest of the church from exile, from persecution, to also endure that they would join him. That they would not crumble as pressure increases in this world. Now we know that there are many, many, many Christians in this world today who are physically persecuted for their faith in Jesus. We support, you'll see 17 faces up in the hallway. Uh, I think we're now supporting 24 missionaries, pastors in India who risk their lives every single day for sharing the gospel. We will stop supporting them on the day that they're either fully supported by their church or they die. That's the reality of their life. And now while we here in America, we do not face what we could say the physical persecution like that. Maybe, maybe not yet, maybe never. We don't know what that will look like. But there are very real pressures here in America. Political, social pressures against being a Christian. And those, those pressures are real. And so John, what he's doing, He's going to instruct us on how we can patiently and joyfully endure the tribulation here on earth as citizens of God's kingdom. And so the question would be, how do we do it, John? You describe it in verse 9. Okay, so I get it. How? What do we do? What do you need? What do I need? And the answer is we look to Jesus. That's the answer, because that, that's what he does. He's going to give this vision of Jesus, and he's going to tell, look to Jesus. I want you to see who Jesus is. And so this vision of Jesus, this first vision that we're given in Revelation about Jesus is meant to crush fears and anxiety so that we would persevere in the faith. That's the purpose of this vision. Now remember, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic simply means to reveal that which is hidden. So here's what we need to know. While it might not look like Jesus is on his throne at the present, Revelation gives us a behind-the-scene look at the real true, spiritual, and heavenly reality of what is going on right now. So the whole point, John's strengthening churches who are persecuted, who are, who are suffering, and he says, okay, I want you to see something. 
He pulls back the curtain. Jesus is on his throne. And now he's going to let us see exactly who Jesus is and what he looks like. And so now we're going to go three truths about Jesus. So we're going to start looking at this vision that John gives us. And the first thing that I want you to see, that I think we're meant to see, is that Jesus is the long-awaited king. All throughout the Bible, we're looking for the great king who will defeat the enemies of God, who will rule God's people in perfect peace and perfect righteousness. I read earlier from Psalm 2, written by David, looking forward to this greater king who will rule the nations. In fact, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God comes to David and he tells him, I'm going to give you an offspring and this offspring will rule on a throne forever. And when we come here, even in Revelation, if you notice in verse 13, the words, son of man. Those words are not picked at random. What John is doing, and he's going to do it all throughout the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is more Old Testament, either direct quotes or allusions than any other book. He's going to pull from the Old Testament imagery so that we would understand what's happening here. So he says, the Son of Man, that's who I saw walking among the lampstands, which would then make you and I as first century readers or today as we read the Bible go, who is the Son of Man? And what we ought to do is remember the vision given in Daniel 7 because the vision that was given in Daniel 7 is about the Son of Man and that shaped Jewish expectation about who the Messiah would be. And so when we come to Daniel 7, we're given a vision. And first part of the vision, we have these kingdoms, and they're pictured like animals. They're horrific looking. They represent the worldly kingdoms of, of the world. They're violent. They're oppressive. And then comes one like the Son of Man. And this is what we're told. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, which would be God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, all nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." This is why we need to know our Bibles. Jesus does not just appear in the first century out of nowhere. All the way from Genesis 3, we are told, no, there will be one who will come from the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, which is one reason we have all these genealogies. We're looking for this, this serpent-crushing king. We need to know our Bibles because as we know our Old Testament, it will inform us who Jesus is. It will help us to understand his rule and his reign. And so Jesus is the king that all of history has been anticipating. He's the one who will defeat and overcome all wickedness and evil. Jesus is the righteous king who possesses all glory and dominion. He's the one the Old Testament has been anticipating. John is saying he's here now. This is our king. To then, which we come to the second point, 
Jesus is a king like no other. Now, in verses 13 through 16, we're given a description of Jesus. But let me say this. This description is not what Jesus looks like, but it's what he is like. Does that make sense? Like, we're not meant to grab our art supplies at this moment. You know, some of you are good at art. I'm not, so I wouldn't do this anyway. And then try to draw what we see here, and then go, that's Jesus. That's, that's not the point. We're not being told what he looks like necessarily. We're being told what he's like, what it means for him to be king. And so we're not going to unpack every aspect of this, but I kind of want to just take it as a whole and understand what is this vision meant to communicate Because we begin and we see he has a long robe and a golden sash which says, yes, he's not only king, but he's priest. He rules in righteousness and he brings us into the very presence of God. That's who this king is. He's the ultimate king priest. The one who all the way back from the Old Testament, Melchizedek, was pointing us towards. And then we're told... His eyes are a flame of fire. His feet are burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword. And his face is glorious and brilliant. It's like the sun at full strength. So I want to just ask you, what do you think John's trying to communicate here? What is this vision conveying? Is he saying this is what all kings look like? Is he saying Jesus is just like an other ordinary king, just like every other king you've ever seen? Is this vision meant to show that Jesus is weak? That he's finite? That he's feeble? That he's able to be overcome? And what we see is this picture is meant to show that Jesus is immeasurably strong. With these eyes of fire, he sees everything with this penetrating gaze. With his feet of burnished bronze, he's unmovable. There's no wickedness and there's no injustice in him because he's brilliant like the very glory of God. He's radiant and pure and righteous in every way. And when he speaks, his voice thunders like a roar. Isn't that awesome? Like I think we're meant to think like a lion or like Niagara Falls. If you remember... Back in Mark chapter 4, Jesus was on a boat with professional fishermen. And the professional fishermen who spend a lot of time on the boat are pretty scared of this storm. Now, I'd probably be scared no matter what. But they're not supposed to be because they're fishermen. They know what it's like to be on a boat in a storm. But somehow, this storm is a little more powerful than what they're used to. But eventually, Jesus gets up. And he stands And he says, peace, be still. And creation bends at his will. And instantaneously, it's still. What we have here is a king like none other. In fact, in verse 14, we're told that his hair is white, like wool, like snow. So not only is this king infinitely strong and powerful and righteous, but he's wise. He always knows not only what is right, but what is perfect. He, never, he is never wrong. Every thought and every action he takes is perfect. Isn't that amazing? 
Like if you're going to follow a king, that's the kind of king you want to follow. The one who's perfect and wise and knows exactly what to do in every situation at all times. But interestingly, Daniel 7, in the vision, God the Father, the Ancient of Days, has hair white like wool, like snow. And we know Daniel's, or we know John's thinking of this vision because he already said son of man. So is John confused? Is he getting confused between the father and the son? He's like, oh man, I'm starting to talk about the father. I should be talking about the son. He's not confused, but rather he's connecting. He's connecting the glory of the father with the glory of the son. Remember, Jesus said in John 14, 9, if you have seen the Son, do you remember how it goes? You have seen the Father because Jesus is the radiance of the very glory of God. So John's doing something pretty incredible right here. He's saying Jesus is the King. He rules in righteousness right now. He's unlike any other because he is God. He is the very glory of God. He's the one who spoke creation into existence. He's the one who redeems us at the cross. He's the the one who rose from the grave and now rules from eternity. This is our king. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's commanding. He's wise. He's just. He's righteous. He's unshakable. And he's perfect. That's what John is showing us in this vision of Jesus to a church that's trembling in their faith. And he says, oh, we can stand firm because of our king. But it gets better. Third point, Jesus is king now. Do you know that? Like two people here know that. (laughs) Do you know that Jesus is king now? I think it's easy to say that. Yeah, yeah, I know that. Yeah, Jesus is king. Of course he's king. He's always king. But I think we forget this truth. We know that when Jesus returns again, so the second coming, we know when he returns again, in all glory, it'll be a lightning that streaks straight across the sky, and and every eye will see him, from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and every language. And everyone at that point will confess that he is Lord, either on heaven, under heaven, or on earth. Everyone will see that Jesus is God the King. And we know that then, and I think that there are many times that we begin to think, well, I know he's king now, but he's really king then. Like that's when his rule really starts. But we must understand that John is giving us a vision of Jesus now. And if we get this truth, if we forget this truth, we will not persevere in our faith. If we don't know that Jesus is king right now, on his throne, ruling all things, we will think that chaos and evil rule, and God has lost control. And that becomes apparent in many conversations. Do you remember when Jesus 
began his earthly ministry, what he began to preach? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus says, repent. The king and believe, or he says, he actually says, the time is fulfilled, and the earthly and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he's saying, it's here. It's here now. In the person of Jesus, the rule and the reign and presence of God has come to earth then. So the kingdom of God is present. And then, all throughout the life and the ministry of Jesus, we see the kingdom of God advancing in the world. We see what it looks like for his rule, his presence to be on earth. And so I encourage you, go back and read Mark 1 through 5, like in detail. I'm going to give you like the 10-second synopsis of Mark 1 through 5. But Mark, who is probably Peter's scribe, so this is really Mark, just so you know, is probably the, is, um, the gospel of Peter. He's giving us an account of what it looks like when Jesus comes on earth. And he wants us to know that Jesus is king. So when we go through Mark 1 through 5, we see Jesus healed lepers. He healed the sick. He healed the par- paralytics. He, he made the lame walk. He took a man who had the withered hand, and he made it straight again. He stood up in a boat in the midst of a storm and said, Be still, and it happened. What we see as we're making our way through the first four chapters of Mark is that nothing can resist the will of this king. But then we come to Mark 5. Mark 5 is an amazing chapter. It's a very climactic chapter. Jesus encounters a man in a cemetery. Some of you are going, yeah, I know that story. This man could not be bound with chains And he has a legion of demons inside of him. So a legion would be 6,000 demons. So a lot of times we we think, we think, uh, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Kings 18, 1 Kings, Mount Carmel. Yeah, 1st or 2 Kings 18, one of those. And, And there's the showdown between Elijah, the true God, and the God of Baal, right? And we go, that's, that's the ultimate showdown. Now this This is a showdown right here. You got one man against 6,000. You got this king against this legion of demons representing the kingdom of darkness. We got the kingdom of God versus kingdom of, of darkness. Who is going to win? You have a man surrounded by 2,000 pigs, because you go into the story, which are unclean. He's in a cemetery, which is unclean. He's filled with demons. Everything about this man is unclean. It, it's a picture of the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus enters in to this kingdom where this man is, ba- uh, is unable to be bound with chains. And he frees the man. With a word, he casts out 6,000 demons. And the man sits before Jesus with a right mind. And the crowds from the villages come, and they're just like, what happened? This is our king. When he came 2,000 years ago, he brought the kingdom in. He ushered the kingdom, and the kingdom is here today, now. And the kingdom power that Christ has is now given through the church, that we would experience his rule and his blessing and his presence today. 
It's because Jesus is our king that we can endure tribulation here, here on earth. And we can do so with joy. And when we do that, we give evidence of two things. One, that our faith is in Jesus as king now. Patient endurance reveals that Jesus is king now. And patient endurance reveals that we know that Jesus will return in the fullness of glory. That's why we persevere. Because our king reigns now and he's coming back. And we know that. So what I want to do, I've kind of looked at this vision of Jesus. And so I, I want to now just even further say, okay, so let's, let's get four reasons on top of what we've seen that we can joyfully persevere in the faith. Based upon this vision. Based upon who this king is. I just want to give four reasons. We're going to walk through them. Number one, Jesus is our king. If you've trusted in Jesus, then you need to know that the rule of Jesus is for you, not against you. Do you know that? It's for you. It's amen indeed. Like, like look at verse 17. When John sees the vision, what does John do? He falls down. I think we all would have fallen down, right? Like, I, I'm just, I think it's pretty cool he even got back up. Like, I think we're all just down on the ground. But, but what does Jesus say? John's just seen the vision of the glorious King Jesus, the one who everyone will bow before. And Jesus says, oh, but John, you don't need to fear. Fear not. Listen, kings, rulers, presidents, they all affect their citizens. They can bring peace and joy or anxiety and sorrow. They can bring about excitement and confidence or bitterness and oppression. But for the Christian, our king brings no fear. We have joy because our king is Jesus. And when the world is in chaos, when leaders make ungodly decisions, when there is justice in the world, our response is not one of fear and anxiety. And it's not because we're indifferent. It's not because we're going, well, it's all going to burn up anyway. I don't care. That is not our position. But we remember that our true citizenship is in heaven. And we know that in the midst of what looks like chaos behind the scenes, Jesus is on his throne. And he's ruling all things right now for the good of those who love him and for his glory. Our response is joy. It's not chaos. History is not chaos, but is guided by the perfect, powerful hand of Jesus. Listen, our hope is not in this world. There's no earthly president, king, ruler, power that determines your worth and your destiny. Listen, as I said earlier, we, we support many pastors out there, pictures of them in India right now who are risking their lives every day for the advancement of the gospel. It's this truth that Jesus is king and is in ultimate control of everything that spurs them on. It's the truth that Jesus is king that, that crushes fear and ignites faith and joy. And we need to remind ourselves that every single day. Truth number two on why we can be encouraged to joyfully run is because Jesus conquered death. Look at verse 18. Jesus says, I'm the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death in Hades. He's conquered death. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told death has lost its sting. Why? Jesus defeated it. He died and then rose. So what does that mean for the believer? Death has no hold on you and I. If you know Jesus Christ, then just as Jesus rose from the grave, so will you. So John is turning to the church and he's saying, look, they they can kill us. They can feed us to the animals. They can light us up like streetlights. But we will not stay dead. Our king is alive and death will not have the last word. This is why Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Paul's version of this is in Romans 8. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus is king. He conquered death. Nothing can separate you from his love. So the worst thing the world can do is kill you, and according to God's word, that just brings us into his presence. Which is why Paul says to live is Christ, die is gain. You want to kill me? Go for it. Send me to Jesus. This is why in Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are arrested and they're brought before the high priest, this is what, they, this is what happens. It says they called them and charged them, do not speak or teach in the name of Jesus. That's what the worldly rulers are telling the apostles at this moment. And they have the power to persecute them. They have the power to beat them. They have the power to imprison them. And this is what, this is is the response. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And they go out and continue preaching the gospel. You can threaten me with death, but my king conquered death. So it's really no threat at all. In fact, if you kill me, it will only serve to advance the gospel all the further. So what what threat do you hold against me? Is what Peter and John are saying. Listen, when we no longer fear death, we will share the gospel with boldness. We will go to the unreached parts of this world. We will risk our lives. We will not abandon the faith when trials and suffering comes, but we will run in the faith, and we will do so with joy, knowing there's nothing that separates us from our king. Do you know that? There's nothing that separates you. In fact, it's because Jesus conquered death that we read this later in Revelation. In Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, he says, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from so on. Now, I I want you to think, if, if that's all we had, Christianity would be kind of a weird religion. And I don't think any of us are jumping on it. But when we see that verse in the context of 66 books of a God who sent his son to come to this earth, who died, who rose, who rules on high, 
And we know that he's bringing every one of his children into his presence. We know there is goodness in that verse because we can say, blessed are, the, are those who die in the Lord because we know we are then present with him for all of eternity. That is why we can run with joy no matter what the pressure of this world might be. Number three, Jesus is with us. And you got to see this. This is so good. Like, look, Revelation 1.13, Jesus is walking among lampstands. Verse 20, we're told the lampstands are the churches. So, where's Jesus right now? Come on now, we can do good exegesis. Where is Jesus right now? He's right at the right hand of the Father. But according to, to this text, he's with the church. He's with the church. Isn't that good news? Now remember, does it look like he's with the church? Does anyone see Jesus? You all save a seat? But, but what does Revelation do? It's apocalyptic literature. It reveals that which is hidden. He's pulling back the curtain. He's letting you look behind the scenes. Where is Jesus? Oh, the truth is, he's with you. And you go, well, that's, that's not true. Prove it. Okay, let's go to chapters 2 and 3 where he writes to the seven churches, perfectly explains what they're going through, what they will go through, and what they need to stand firm. He knows their present condition, their future need, and he knows the grace they need to be able to stand firm because he's king. He is with the church. He knows what you are going through individually, and he knows what we are going through corporately. He knows what you need. He knows what I need. He knows the grace that you need every day to stand firm in your faith. He knows the grace you need to be a faithful husband, to be a faithful wife, to persevere at work, to share the gospel at work. He knows what health needs you have and what grace you need to stand firm and endure so with joy because we all know these bodies are going to fade and we are given an eternal body that will never fade. And so what, what happens then when John falls down? We see that Jesus says, fear not, but what else happens? Jesus reaches out with his right hand to strengthen him. Do you get that? That's what happens every day when we come into God's word. We're experiencing the grace of God. And when we come like this as a body of believers, we're experiencing the grace of God in our lives right now. And when you meet one-on-one -on -one with another believer and they encourage you and instruct you and pray with you and cry with you and all the things that we do with one another, they're a means of grace in which God is strengthening you at that moment, which is why we so believe it is important that we do life with one another. Listen, our king is infinitely powerful. And he's right here with you right now. That's incredible. Because if you were to go to the Greek gods, they're either infinitely powerful and extremely distant, or they're right here with you and they have no power at all. But God is infinitely powerful and present with us. He is our king, 
infinitely wise, infinitely righteous, knows what you need. Never gets it wrong. Never gets it wrong. Last one. Jesus will always be king. Every kingdom that has ever existed has fallen. No king lasts, no kingdom lasts. Notice what Jesus says. He says, he is the first and the last, the living one. What's he saying? My throne will never end. My kingdom will never come to an end. It will never, ever be conquered. And we talked earlier today, 9-11, 21 years ago. I'm sure many of you still remember exactly where you were on that day. You remember the events of that day. And as, as Chris already kind of walked through some of the statistics, our country remembers that day to the person. Lives were forever changed. America had been attacked. Policies have changed. Security measures have been increased to try to prevent anything like that from ever happening again. But if we're honest, we, we still see terrorist attacks throughout the world. We've seen bombs go off in Europe. We've seen countries attack other countries. And we will continue to see like, things like that until the return of Christ. But when Jesus returns... He says he will bring the kingdom in all of its fullness, in all of its glory. He promises that nothing unclean will ever enter this kingdom. In fact, Revelation 21, 27 says the gates will never be shut. Or Revelation 21, 25, the gates will never be shut. What kind of kingdom doesn't close its doors? You've got to close them, otherwise other people are going to come in. But Jesus says, no, my, my gates are open for all of eternity because in Revelation 21, 27, it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. He says, only my children will come into this kingdom. And in Zechariah 2, which is this Old Testament picture of that day, God says, I will be a wall of fire around my people. We need no walls. We need no gates. God will guard his kingdom. There will be no terrorist attack. There will be no usurping his authority. When Jesus comes back in eternity, no longer will his rule be hidden, but it will be revealed for all to see in Philippians 2, where it says, and every tongue on heaven, in heaven, on earth, and under earth will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will be people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language in this kingdom because our king has willed it. And there is nothing that thwarts his will. And so remember, we're coming back to this text, and John is looking to the church who's trembling in their faith, who's wrestling with apathy, who's wrestling with persecution, going, can we continue? And he's saying, look to Jesus. This is nothing about look to yourself. This is nothing about you can do it if only you are strong enough. It says, look to Jesus. He's your king. He'll give you the grace you need. He'll protect the kingdom. Because you're a citizen in his kingdom. Oh, he will give you the perfect grace you need every single day to stand firm. So I ask you, 
What do we fear? What should we fear? What is outside the rule of King Jesus? What is stronger than King Jesus? Um, some of you might know this, this dates me, um, and it reveals the kind of movies I like. Um, but back in like 1980s, there was this movie called The Bear. Thank you. Thank you. One person. Story about a bear cub. His mom dies in the beginning, and it's kind of the adventures of this bear cub, and he kind of runs into this mountain lion every once in a while, he eventually escapes. But at the end of the movie, the mountain lion has the bear, and it's going to kill him. And little bear cub at the last moment kind of stands up and gives his, his, you know, his battle cry, which is laughable. And then the mountain lion runs away. And little bear doesn't know, though, there is a gigantic grizzly bear behind him. Now, that illustration fails at like 10,000 points for this sermon. I totally realize that. But there is a small aspect of that that we see because... Because the fact that we are in the kingdom does not produce arrogance and pride in us. Because it's nothing about our strength. But we stand firm because we know the king who's with us. We know the king who stands behind us. We know that his rule and his reign is for us and in us and works through us. So we have nothing to fear. That is our king. I want you to know that is how we are meant to live each and every day. And as we close, I just kind of want to pick on one area. I know that over the last couple years, that because of politics and social changes that have taken place or become more apparent in our culture, there has been a spirit of fear that has just made its way through America Believer or unbeliever? And some of you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You either have have been caught up in that fear or you know people who are caught up in that fear. And I I want to encourage you that some of you have, have spent so much time indoctrinating yourself in the things of this world, in the divisions and the fights and the things of politics, which, which politics, we should know them. We're not at all calling we being different to them. But you've done so that you've worked yourself up into a frenzy, and you are in a constant state of anxiety. And I want to encourage you today to repent. Repent because you have not trusted that Jesus is king. And we can pick on a hundred different things that do that. That's just one that stood out in so many ways in the last couple years. Is that the things that have happened in this world have created a frenzy even within the church. But we as the church, above anyone else, know who's king. Know who's ultimately in control. So no matter what's happening on the political landscape, America or anywhere else, we don't need to be caught up in anxiety because we know why it looks like chaos behind the scenes, is it? No, there's a king, and he's ruling it. He's bringing it to a time that he will return. So I want to encourage you. If you've just found that your heart is in a constant state of anxiety, come back to the gospel and just confess that and believe that Jesus Christ is king. If you know people, I encourage you to go to them 
Encourage them in the truth of who our king is. Jesus is our mighty warrior king. He will guard the kingdom of God. He will protect it forever. That is our future. And we can joyfully persevere in the faith today because we are his citizens and he is our king. So let me pray. And then we will, we will partake of communion this morning. Father, Father, we, we just we praise you that you sent your son Jesus to earth. That he died on a cross. Three days later, he rose conquering death, conquering sin, conquering Satan. He's the ruler of the kingdoms of earth now. And Lord, I pray for every single person here that we would have the faith to see what Revelation is teaching us, that your king, Jesus, is king now. And that we would live in light of that reality. May we know that and may that truth comfort us. And wherever there are areas in our life that we are not trusting in you, Lord, I pray that you expose that in our hearts, that we would confess that so we would live rightly before you and we would joyfully and patiently endure while we live here on earth knowing you're returning. God, may our very lives be a testimony of the kingdom. And may the world look at us and see the joy that we have in the midst of what looks like chaos. And may, ask, may they ask us, why do we have such joy? And Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts at that moment and free our tongue that we would tell them about you. Oh God, I pray that we as a church would greatly, greatly, greatly rejoice in the truth that you are king. I pray that we would love that truth and we would embrace that truth and we would live out that truth daily. And Lord, as we take communion now and we celebrate the fact that you came, you died, and you rose, God, may this time be one of great joy. And again, Lord, if there's, there's anyone here and they're just aware that there are areas that they've not been trusting in you. There, is, there are areas of anxiety and worry. I pray you just expose that, Lord, that we might confess that and rightly believe in you. Father, we thank you for your grace. In your name, Jesus, amen.